the major issues of every Christian's life is the guidance and the direction of God. What does God want for my life? And how can I hear His voice? It's always a major concern. It becomes a concern shortly after a person is converted. When a person is first coming to know Jesus, and he's convinced that he's a sinner, and by the way, you can't really be a Christian unless you know you need a Savior. You don't just say, well, you know, I'm a good person and I'm such a wonderful person, but I need to do something, so I'll be involved in the church. People like that usually aren't saved. It's when a person understands that he's poor in spirit and that he needs a Savior because he's a sinner and he can't do it himself with any self-help program or any kind of aid, that he needs Jesus, he comes to ask Jesus to be a Savior. That's the first step, but it's not the last step. The person at that point isn't concerned about knowing the perfect will of God for their lives. At that point, basically, they want fire insurance. They want to escape the punishment of their sins and they want to have a Savior to remove the guilt that they're feeling. But shortly after a person comes to know Jesus, there is usually a natural longing and a yearning to become acquainted with God's requirements. What does God want me to do now? I mean, it's no fun being a Christian just to say, I've been saved from my sins. I mean, that is a wonderful thing. That's the purpose Jesus came. But after you get to that point, you want to grow further and further, not just stay at that point. The writer of Hebrews said that let's not lay again those basic rudiments and foundation of baptism, repentance from dead works, and so forth. Let's go on to maturity. And a Christian usually, naturally, would want to know what the will of God for his life is, what God requires. When I gave my life to the Lord up in San Jose, California, and I rode my motorcycle down south, I was so excited I was singing songs on the freeway at the top of my lungs, and nobody, even myself, at 65 miles an hour could hear me. But I was singing unto the Lord. I was elated. I felt like that great burden of sin and judgment had been lifted off and I was going to heaven. I was excited about that fact. I knew for certain that I was going to heaven. I never had that assurance before. First of all, I never thought God wanted me in heaven and I didn't think really heaven would be that much fun. But after I came to know Jesus, it was an exciting prospect. When I came home, I told my brother that I had become a Christian. And I told him, now this is how dense spiritually I was. I told him, listen, you don't have to give up your drugs. In fact, you don't have to do anything except ask Jesus into your life. You just kind of add Him to whatever else you're doing and He fills in your life. That's how little I knew about the Gospel. And of course, I gave him a wrong line of which I had to correct later on, but about a week after that, when I kind of thought that Jesus was a spoke that I added to my wheel, I was reading a little Bible that somebody had given me called Good News for a Modern Man, which is a paraphrased version of the Bible. It's really not an accurate translation, but God sure used it in my life. And I opened up to one portion of Scripture where Jesus, in a paraphrased sense, said, Blessed are those whose greatest desire is to do what God requires. And that arrested my attention. I closed the book and I thought, hmm, Hey, is my greatest desire to do what God requires? And I had to be honest with myself. Nobody was in the room but me and God. I said, God, it's not my greatest desire. I've kind of added you to benefit me. I kind of saw you as a self-help program to help me get to my goal. And I put down the book and I said, Lord, there's a lot of things in my life, including some of these sinful activities I've been involved in that right now I turn over to you. I don't want to do them anymore. In fact, I want to do what you require. How can I know what you require? The prospect of God wanting me to function in a God-given capacity for His glory fascinated me. You mean God wants to do something with me? He has a program and a plan for my life? Gee, I'd like to know what that is. Now, how can I know that? And often confusion arises for the Christian at this point. 
How do you know what God requires? If that becomes your greatest desire, where do you go from there? Well, nobody told me I was a baby Christian, but I wanted to hear God's voice. I didn't know how to hear that. I didn't really know all that the Bible was about. I only read a few paragraphs in Good News for Modern Man. If you asked me to find Habakkuk, I would have said, uh, excuse me, or God bless you, Gesundheit. I didn't know. And so I figured, well, I heard that Moses, I saw the Ten Commandments, and I saw that Moses went up on top of a mountain and God spoke to him. This is really the truth. This is where I was at. And so I went out back and found a little staff and walked up to a nearby mountain and I sat on it for about three hours. I said, God, speak. I even took out a pad of paper and a pencil. And I was waiting for him. I wanted to know the voice of God. In trying to discern God's voice, some people will isolate themselves. They say, I don't need anybody. I don't need any accountability. I don't need the church. Uh, I don't even need the scripture. God just speaks to me privately. And I know this is God because he just told me so. Ever met people like that? I'm not saying God doesn't speak to people. Surely he does. But what if it's contrary to the word of God, biblically sound counsel and biblically based accountability? There's a lot of loose canons that go around saying, well, I know the Bible says that and everybody says that in the organized church, but God has told me differently. But then there are those who go on the other extreme to hear God's voice. They feel so intimidated by the prospect that they think somebody else has to do their thinking for them. And they don't trust having a relationship with God, so they look to a shepherd. And, hey, shepherd, whatever you tell me to do, that God says, I'll do it. And it's really a cop-out. They don't want to be responsible for making right or wrong choices and standing on their own before God. They'd rather have someone make those choices for them. Now, I found that God directs, guides, and speaks in all sorts of ways. There's not one particular pattern, although there are guidelines. And God is not restricted to anything. God, Hebrews 1 tells us, who at different times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. God isn't restricted. God can speak in a number of ways and let his voice be known. But there are so many other voices that we get confused. We get a thought and we immediately say, now, was that God's voice? Or maybe that was just me. Or worse yet, maybe it was the devil. And so we get confused. It's either God, me, or the devil. Well, those are three significant different choices. But we sometimes get confused. And that's the reason so many people don't want to be responsible for saying, I feel God is leading me in this direction. Let somebody else decide for me is because of the prospect. I had a girl come to me one time who went to I don't know how many different counselors and they told her five different things and she finally came to me and she said, listen, you're my pastor and basically I've come here with this prospect. Whatever you speak, whatever comes from your mouth is the will of God for my life. Now here's the decision I'm trying to make. What about it? And I said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to make that choice. I will help you discover some principles and the real issues so that you then can stand before God alone and make that choice. Because you're responsible for yourself. I'm not responsible for you. The voice of God. Now Paul had to deal with this in chapter 21. The same way. He was on his way to Jerusalem. He felt the prompting of the Holy Spirit. But everywhere he went, everyone was saying, don't go, don't go. It's not God's will that you should go. And any time you go in any direction, you're going to have some kind of opposition. Let's read chapter 21. The first few verses. Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, returning a straight course, we came to Kos the following day to Rhodes and from there to Patara. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload her cargo. I've never taken that journey by boat, but I have gone over the same by airplane and look down on it. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. 
When we had come to the end of those days, we departed, went on our way, and they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city. And we knelt down on the shore and prayed. And when we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and they returned home. So Paul's still going. Don't go, Paul. But they said, see you later, and got back on the ship. When we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemais, or the modern city in Israel called Akko. If you're going on a tour to Israel, you'll be there next week. Greeted the brethren and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered his house of Philippi, or Philippi, Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied, and we stayed many days. A certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, and he bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of Gentiles. And when we had heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Now, a few foundational truths here. A typical scenario for the believer we have just read, where a decision is made to go somewhere that we think is the will of God, and yet there are people who even by God's Spirit are seeing what will happen and perhaps warning us that maybe it's not God's will for us to go. We walk by faith. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians, we walk by faith and not by sight. Now let's all be honest with ourselves. We hate faith. We hate the walk of faith. We hate to go in a direction that we can't see. We would rather be able to see way down the road so that we can be in control and plan our own lives. We like to walk by sight, not blindfolded. What if somebody said, listen, as you get in your car in the morning behind your wheel, I'm putting a rag over your eyes so you can't see a thing. But trust me, I'll tell you when to turn right and left, slow down, speed up. That's a frightening prospect. We have to trust completely that person's decisions. We're more apt to trust our own choices. We trust our own vision, our own sight. It's harder to walk by faith. It's easier to walk by sight. And intellectually, we detest it. We would rather figure out the plan in the future rather than have to trust in what some people mistakenly call blind faith. It's not blind at all, especially if you know the one that you're trusting who sees all. But it's hard for the human nature to trust God. The intellect wants to find out the plan. You know, we'd all like a vision, like Peter, when he was on the housetop. He's in a trance, a vision comes, he sees the sheet let down, and God says, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I don't know if that would do much, us much good. It happened to Peter, and he said, no, whoa, no way, Lord, not so. So he disobeyed the vision. Or we'd like an audible voice like Moses. Or we'd like a dream like Joseph. We'd like some kind of visible guidance. Yet, the Bible says, the just shall live by faith. God does want to direct, but His way of direct is that you trust Him and sometimes He won't tell you anything. You just wait on Him. But the just shall live by faith. That comes, by the way, out of the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. It's a real interesting story. Habakkuk is looking around and he sees the nation of Israel not in prosperity, but he sees wickedness all around him. Spiritual degradation. And he cries out to God, Hey God, how long? I've been praying for this nation for a long time. Why don't you do something? And God answers him, Habakkuk, I'm going to do something that if it were told to you, you wouldn't even believe. Well, try me. All right? I'm going to send... The Babylonians, your enemies, the king of idolatry, into your land to take all of you captive and punish you because you've fallen away. God, I can't believe that you do that. See, I told you you wouldn't believe me, Habakkuk. Habakkuk started saying, God, why would you do such a thing? We're wicked, but they're really wicked. 
God said, well, I'm going to use them as a chastening rod to come against you and restore the land back to the way I wanted it to be. Habakkuk, it's hard to understand as you see the wicked, but Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. And you know what Habakkuk's response was? In the next chapter, he says, Oh Lord, revive your work in the midst of years. Revive your work in the midst of years, but temper your wrath with mercy. The word revive in Hebrew means keep alive your work. Now that's faith. Lord, I don't know what you're doing, but whatever you're doing, keep doing it. Revive your work. Keep going and doing the very thing I don't understand and that I intellectually resent. Keep it going. I'll live by faith. And so God keeps going. But the chapter and the book closes out with the greatest declaration of faith, saying, God, I'm going to trust in your guidance. As he looks around and he sees that the nation of Israel is failing, he said, though there are no herds in the barn, there's no grain in the fields, and all the natural provisions have been depleted. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord and joy in the God of my salvation. Though outwardly everything is passing away and outwardly there's no provision, I rejoice in you. And you know the word rejoice in Hebrew in that text means I will jump in the air for joy. And the next time it says, I will joy in the God of my salvation. In Hebrew, it means I will spin around for gladness. God, I don't understand what you're doing. But since you said the just shall live by faith, I'm going to trust you to guide my life. And if your voice, if you're speaking to the nation of Israel means judgment by a more wicked nation, then you do it. I'll just trust you. In fact, I'll spin around for joy. Even though I can't see any outward provision, my hope and trust is in you. He knew what it meant to completely trust in someone that he didn't see, but he knew. You see, that's the interesting thing and the beautiful thing about guidance. Though the future is uncertain, the person you're trusting is certain. You know him. Has he let you down before? Can you look back and say, you know, God lied to me. He never kept his promise. I'm going to sue him for breach of contract. God has always kept his promises and it takes relying completely upon Him for Him to speak. The just shall live by faith. Now there's some foundational truths. First of all, God wants to guide your life. It's God's desire to give you direction and for you to hear His voice. The Bible says in Psalm 37, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. He delights in His path. David declared in Psalm 32 that God said, I will instruct and teach you in the way you shall go. I will guide you with my eye. Paul in Romans said we can know God's will. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you can prove or know for certain the perfect and acceptable will of God. It's God's desire to give you His guidance. But secondly, there's conflict. You will have some conflict in this life of faith, you won't be able to see or understand. In fact, the conflict will come from other voices. And I want to explain that because a lot of you have had this happen. The first conflict you will have in discerning God's voice and living by faith is with yourself. And it's with your own mind. Your own mind is active. It's always processing information. It is never Standing still. Even when you're asleep, subconsciously, your mind is active. It's processing things. You're dreaming things. Sometimes you retain the information. Sometimes you forget it, but you dream thousands of times every night. Your mind is always active. And you have a God-given capacity in your mind for reason and logic. You can send messages to yourself. When you can't figure out something, you can look at it and go, okay, let me reason this out and come up to a conclusion based upon my observations. God has given you the capacity of reason. The problem is the messages that go through your mind, in your own logic even, are always not necessarily true nor trustworthy. You can't always trust the messages that come from your own mind. 
Because oftentimes those messages come from your soul, the emotional part of you. You feel a certain way that isn't necessarily true. You might come up to your husband and say, I feel like you're angry at me. Oh, I'm not angry at you. I love you. If I've given you those overtures, I'm sorry, but I am not angry. Well, I just feel like you are. Well, your feelings and the thoughts and messages that go into your mind are not accurate feelings. I love you, and I'm not angry at you at all. So those messages or voices aren't always trustworthy. I read today that the human personality consists roughly of four-fifths emotions and one-fifth intellect, which means... this. Article says that decisions are made on the basis of 80% emotion and only 20% intellect. Now, how many times have you said or heard a person say, I don't feel close to God. I feel like God isn't near me. I feel like God doesn't care about me. I feel like there's a distance between God and me. And so you'll go through the reasoning process with them. Okay, let's rule some things out. Is there sin in your life? Boy, not that I know of, and I've repented of things. I've even made up a few sins to repent of, just to clear my conscience before God. All right? So you're not walking in any known rebellion to God. Are you in daily fellowship with the Lord? Do you read your Bible? I read it faithfully. Do you pray? I pray every day. Are you in fellowship with God's people? I am in fellowship. I seek the Lord with all my heart. Hmm. Okay. And every time you do that, what happens? I just don't feel close to God. God has abandoned me. Well, listen to this. The Bible says God will never leave you or forsake you. That He'll be with you to the end of the world. Now, God made that promise, which means unless there's known sin in your life, and you go through all the Scriptures that speak about how you can be alienated as a Christian, barring any of those things, your emotions, your mind has told you something that is not true. It's inaccurate. The voice that you heard is not the voice of God. It's your own voice. Something has happened externally or some reasoning internally that has triggered off a thought that's come across your mind and you said, God abandoned me. Who oh, no. And then you start reacting emotionally to that. It's not God's voice. That's one of the barriers is hearing Though you think it might be logical, it's not theological. Jesus promised He would always be with you. See, the mind is complex. It's hard to tell where you get some of the thoughts you get. And I know it's difficult. Thoughts come into your mind and you think, where did that come from? That's horrible. Now, God does know your thoughts before you think them. Psalm 139, Lord, You have searched me. And you know me. You know my sitting down and my rising off. And you know my thoughts afar off. Or literally, you know my thoughts before I think them. From the vanishing point. Before they even come into my mind. Before those chemicals come together and the synaptic impulse is formed in my mind to create that thought. You know where it comes from. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I can't attain it. And that's one of the conflicts you have in hearing God's voice is your own voice that is oftentimes not accurate. Moses had this problem. He was 80 years old. And God spoke to him with his voice. Moses, it's time. I got a job for you. Go deliver the children of Israel. Remember what he said? Oh, who am I that I should deliver the children of Israel? Who am I? Now, he had a clear direction that was canceled out by his own message. See, he remembered 40 years back to the time he tried to do it himself and he killed an Egyptian in the process. He thought he could do it then. He failed and now he remembers saying, oh God, I can't do it. How many Christians there are that live in that realm? Never involved in God's work because they're always believing those little messages inside. I can't do it. I can't do a thing. God could never use me. What good am I? It's just like Moses. Moses, go. Who am I? Sounds humble. It's disobedient. Because he's listening to the wrong voice. It's funny. The look on some Christian's face when you tell them, the eyes of the Lord look to and fro throughout the entire earth. God wants to show Himself strong on behalf of any of you whose hearts are perfect toward Him. God wants to use you. 
God has a gift for you and God wants to powerfully show Himself in your life if you'd only let Him. And sometimes it's a look of puzzlement like, do you really believe that? Or better yet, do I really believe that? That God would really, really want to use my life to a significant degree. Who am I that God could use me? And that's the reason we need to walk by faith and not by sight. Without Him, we can't do anything, Jesus said. Without me, you can do nothing. But I can do all things, Paul said, through Christ who gives me the strength. That's the truth, folks. That's what you need to start believing. He said, I can't do it. There's not a place for me in the body. I can never serve God in any capacity. I can never go to the Soviet Union and be a mighty warrior for God. Hey, I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength. Now, that's the truth. The other messages are false messages. It's not the voice of God. There's the voice of Scripture that supersedes that. And we limit God by unbelief and unbiblical self-talk. And those messages aren't from the Lord. When we learn to walk by faith, trusting, though the voice of God might not be clear, hey, I'm going to venture out. It's scary. But it's exciting. It's a blast. Though naturally we hate it, when you walk in faith supernaturally, it is a ball. I think back to that beautiful story in the Old Testament of Jonathan. One morning he gets up, he looks around. It's a beautiful day over in Samaria and Israel. Looks out. Saul is over sitting under a pomegranate tree with 600 men. Jonathan goes to his armor bearer and he says, Hey, let's go over to the garrison of the Philistines and hang out. Let's just go see what's happening. So they go over, just the two of them. Jonathan and the armor bearer peer down into the valley and see the Philistines scattered below. And a crazy thought comes into Jonathan's mind. A thought, to most people, it would seem crazy, but to a man of faith, it would seem like quite an adventure. Jonathan said, you know, let's go down into the camp of the Philistines, the uncircumcised Philistines, the enemies of God. Who knows but that God might work for us. It could be, he said, it just might be that God will work for us. For what restrains the Lord in saving by many or by few? Did you hear his thinking? It's not logical, but it's theological. He said, now, here's the two of us. And here's the whole camp of the Philistines. God's big. He can do anything he wants. In fact, God doesn't need a whole army to do his job. He could use just you and me. Let's risk it. And so they set up this way that they could discern the voice of God and the will of God. They passed the test. They went in and in a half of an acre killed 20 Philistines and then the ground started shaking. The rest of the camp of the Philistines thought 20 of our men are dead. The rest of the Israelites are hiding in the rock somewhere and they're about ready to run up on us and they all fled. And Saul looked out from his pomegranate tree and said, what's the ruckus? And God had defeated the Philistines and chased them off with two guys who dared to walk by faith and not by sight. How about getting up in the morning and just saying, could it be that God has some fantastic, fabulous plan for me to be used by Him today? Should I limit God and say, oh, not me? Or should I say, what restrains the Lord from using even me? For His glory. That was the walk of faith and the venture of faith. And that's believing the right voice that Jonathan discovered. Oftentimes those voices that you hear are also molded by your background and your tradition. They're not true. But it is human nature to revert to the familiar, the old way, especially when a new way is on the, on the scene. It's human nature to want the old and not the new. Jonah was commissioned by God to go to Nineveh. Every God-fearing Jew hated the Ninevites because they were Gentiles. It was the heart of Gentile territory. The normal reaction for the Jew would say, no, I'm not going to go to Nineveh. They're defiled. And he ran away from God. He was molded by his tradition. Surely not. I'm not going to do it. 
Even when God saved Nineveh because of Jonah's preaching, did Jonah rejoice? He pouted. Why didn't you wipe him out, God? I knew if I trusted you that you would be gracious enough and kind enough to forgive them of their sins, and I wish you'd have wiped them out. He got mad at God. He was molded by his own background and his own tradition, which did not give him godly thoughts. So, conflict in hearing God's voice is our own thoughts. Secondly, the voice of the world. You and I are constantly bombarded by worldly advertisements And basically, every day, the world is saying, conform, conform, conform. And when you set out to do God's will and please God, you clash with the world. They're not going to like it. We sent tracts to Saudi Arabia this Christmas. When the press found out about it and people who didn't know Jesus found out about it, they became quite upset. The Bible says the carnal mind is enmity with God. It's against God. It's opposed to God. Now, Christians who knew Jesus and knew the prospect of Saudis coming to know Christ rejoiced. But the world was trying to say, how dare you send foreign literature to change the lives and the minds of the Saudis? And we got flack for it. And we can hear those voices and go, okay, nobody likes what I'm doing. The world doesn't like it. I better stop. Maybe it's not God's will. You either hear your own voice, if it's molded by tradition or by unbiblical self-talk that stem from your emotion, you might say, I'll stop. And we can hear the voice of the world and we could stop as well. Nehemiah was building a wall. He was doing a work for God. He waited on God. He prayed. He went to Israel. As soon as he did it, Sanballat and Tobiah come along and challenged him and accused him. He could have said, well, I don't want to offend anybody, so I won't do God's will. He could have listened to their voice. Pilate did. The saddest verse in the Bible I've read, it says, And the voices of the chief priests and of the people prevailed. Even though Pilate knew Jesus was innocent and was going to let him go, their voices crowded out what he knew was right. So the voice of the world is a hindrance. Then there are the voice of friends, which can be good and it can be bad. You're set on a direction like Paul going to Jerusalem. And this is Paul's conflict. He was compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. His friends, well-meaning people, though they were accurate, seeing in advance that he was going to be tortured and persecuted, said, we discern this is not God's will for your life. Don't go. Paul said, thanks, see ya. When Nehemiah was building the wall, not only did the enemy come, but there was a group who came who pretended to speak the will of God and basically said, Nehemiah, I think your motives are not pure before God. In fact, I believe that you building up this great wall that surrounds the city of Jerusalem is not the will of God. It's your own doing. Nehemiah listened to it, no doubt, prayed about it. It says he prayed and he kept building the wall that God told him to build. Sometimes when you're about to make a decision, you will ask the counsel of one of your friends. Think, well, I can trust them. And they'll give you their advice based on what they think is the truth. And then you'll ask another friend and they'll give you a different piece of advice. And you'll ask a third friend, you'll get a third piece of advice. Pretty soon you'll walk away so confused because all of them many times have different conflicting voices. And sometimes they can even be against the voice of God. Even Jesus was given advice by his friends that was wrong. Peter said, Jesus, don't go to Jerusalem. We won't let you go. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You're not listening to God, you're listening to man. When a woman came in to anoint Jesus' feet with costly perfume, a little bottle of perfume that cost a year's wages. In an extravagant manner, pouring it over Jesus' feet, this expensive, costly ointment. There was one person named Judas who protested and said, What a waste of money! This could have been used to give to the poor. Jesus said, Judas, the poor you will always have with you. 
but me you won't always have with you. And she's done it with the right motivation. Don't you dare judge her. But even the voice of well-meaning friends, just like not-so-well-meaning enemies, can conflict with what we are discerning in God's Word is the voice of God for our lives. When uh, my wife became pregnant, it was an interesting time. And one of the interesting things that happened is we had a lot of people come up and give us a word from the Lord, God's will and a little prophecy, and they would say, God has shown me that you have a baby boy. But we didn't know. I was tempted to get ultrasounded after that just to see if they were right or wrong. But then somebody would come up and say, God has spoken to me, it's a baby girl. Well, you have a 50-50 chance. Half of them said it was a boy. Half of them predicted and prophesied it was a girl. Which means half of them were false prophets. Half of them were true prophets. <coughs> I believe that some of these voices of the prophets, like in Acts chapter 21, are given as a means of confirmation. And if you always go by why somebody, what somebody tells you is from God, you can get into trouble. Paul, Agabus said, chains and imprisonment await you. Just as I take this belt and put it around me, so will the person who owns this belt be bound in Jerusalem. Paul's response in verse 13, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased we gave up, saying, the will of the Lord be done. What do you do with a guy like that? And after those days, we packed and we went to Jerusalem. Paul made a decision for his future. He was going to Jerusalem to deliver the money that he had collected for the church in Judea. His decision to go by some was interpreted as a bad mistake, by others as a courageous move of faith. The ones in Jerusalem saw it as a courageous move of faith. The ones who loved Paul and were the prophets who meant well saw it as a mistake that he wasn't listening to God's voice. A couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, before I went to China, and I asked you to pray for my visa, again, I got two different messages. I said, pray for my visa. It hadn't come in yet. And it didn't come in. I said, please, keep praying for it. It hadn't come in yet. And some would come up and say, hey, it's coming in. God spoke to me. I don't know when. It might be the last, but God's going to show himself strong. All right. And then I had the other side where someone would come and say, I think it hasn't come in because it's not God's will for you to go. And that was well-meaning. They really thought that was true. But I had to go with what I knew in my heart God wanted me to do. And if it wouldn't have come in the first day, it would come in the second day, I'd have taken a late flight and gone over. I was going. I was resolved to go. I felt it was God's will and I had to be obedient to that. Paul has this predicament. First of all, he goes, uh, makes it his, actually, he sets his resolve. Look back in verse, uh, chapter 20 at his choice. In verse 16, for Paul had decided to set, set to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia. He was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. As we read down in verse 22, Paul continues and see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying the chains and tribulations await me. And notice what he says, though. But none of these things move me. Nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I might finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. Hey, if I live, praise the Lord. If I die, praise the Lord. See ya, I'm going. He met with the elders at Ephesus in verse 37 of the same chapter. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. 
He sets sail, as we read, and he comes, first of all, to the city of Tyre in verse 4 of chapter 21. And finding disciples, we stayed there a week. They told Paul, through the Spirit, not to go up to Jerusalem. I bet that was a tough week for Paul. Because in Greek, it says they told him over and over and over and over and over again. A continual thing. An incessant, insistent kind of a pleading. Don't go. Don't go. God spoke to us. You're going to be in prison, man. Don't go. But he went. (laughs) Now, they were sure that it was God's will for him not to go. Paul was sure that he'd go. What do you do? Well, I think you just make the decision after prayer, after good godly counsel, after waiting on God, and you make it. But what if Paul went and things didn't happen the way he wanted them to or expected? The worst thing to do for those Christians, we don't read that they did but because it was the will of God, but what if they would have said, told you so? It's the worst thing you can do. Even if somebody goes out and ventures in faith, it doesn't quite happen. You should still embrace them and say, well, listen, let's move on from here and see what God has for us from here. But they were convinced. We do need to listen to godly counsel. To people who you trust, know God, are mature in the faith, know the Word of God, and have a proven track record in their counsel. You want to listen to them. And you want to weigh their counsel. In the multitude of counselors, the Bible says, there is safety. It's good to make the choice after wise biblical counsel. But the Bible also says that we're not to walk in the counsel of the ungodly. It's prideful to remove ourselves from biblical accountability or the body of Christ and say, okay, I'll just listen on my own without even listening to godly advice. I'm sure Paul prayed about it, thought it over, and he decided to go. Well, he kept going, and in verses 7 through 11, we read about a guy named Agabus, who was very dramatic, who didn't just say, you're going to be bound. He made this play kind of a thing. He wrapped the belt around himself and said, oh, see, that's going to happen to you. Now, he was accurate. He was not a false prophet. He was sent by God and he prophesied accurately. Paul was going to be bound in Jerusalem by the Jews and would be in prison for two years in Caesarea. Probably Paul evaluated it and kept going. And then, notice verse 12, where they conclude, and when we heard these things. Do you notice the change? Now it's personal. Luke's writing, and he says, they said don't go. He said This is what's going to happen. Now Luke joins in all of Paul's companions in verse 12. When we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Now that was overwhelming for Paul. He stood alone. He was outnumbered. Everybody said, you're not in God's will, Paul. Hey, I'm going. Please don't go. Hey, I'm going. Again, evaluated it and he went on. He was not encouraged by one person, but he was convinced that it was God's will. It seems, as you read through this at a glance, that there are contradicting signals. That the Holy Spirit is contradicting Himself. Because, notice a couple verses with me. Uh, Back in chapter 20, verse 22... Paul says, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem. He felt he was, con- he was convinced it was a divine call. But back in chapter 21, verse 4, the disciples in Tyre told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. Now, it seems like we have a contradiction. Paul is convinced that God wants him to go. Through the Spirit, they say don't go. What I believe happened is this. There's a multitude of spiritual gifts emerging here. Paul is an apostle and feels the calling of an apostle to go to Jerusalem. At the same time, there's the word of knowledge that is manifested. Where he understands through these people what's going to happen in the future. And prophecy. It probably happened in Tyre where a word of knowledge was given to these people. And they saw that Paul was going to be bound and in prison. And they took that by their own human deduction to mean that it can't be the will of God that he would go and suffer that. 
when actually it was a confirmation to what Paul had heard all along. Back in chapter 20, he said, I'm bound in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to go. Everywhere I go, the Holy Spirit says I'm going to be bound, but I'm ready to die. It was a confirmation not to swerve his path away. But the well-meaning disciples took it as the voice of God and they went on. What was Paul doing? Following in Jesus' footsteps. He was an apostle. The theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when God calls a man, he calls him to come and die. Paul was willing to do that. And so he finally said in verse 13, what do you mean weeping? Would you quit the emotion? Quit crying. You're breaking my heart. For I am willing or ready not only to be bound like Agabus predicted, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So he wouldn't be persuaded and they went for it. Now, bottom line is this. You can and you must seek God's guidance. He wants to give it to you. He wants to make it plain. He wants you to hear his voice. But it's a walk of faith. As you read the scriptures to hear his voice, as you counsel with the godly people who know the word of God, and you weigh it out, and you seek guidance, and you test the Lord perhaps in certain areas, the bottom line is you make your decision alone before God. No one's going to make it for you. Your pastor or shepherd that you think makes all the right decisions, he's not going to make it for you. You have to make it yourself and be responsible to God. And that's a scary proposition, but it's fascinating because it's a walk of faith and the just will live by faith. I want to close with the entry to a diary. In the life of one of the greatest revivalists of the 20th century, Vance Hanver, died some time ago. He was writing this after his wife, Sarah, had died. And he begins by saying, I am now in Texas, and that Texas wind blows all day long. There is abundant walking space, <coughs> excuse me, and this morning I got up early. The October weather has been glorious, and I must make the most of it before the north wind blows in. On my desk is a picture of Sarah that I have treasured above all others. It is not a formal dressed-up picture of which I have many. It is a snapshot taken on the Blue Ridge Parkway last summer on our visit to that favored spot. She wore a plain little pink dress and she stood at the outlook that commands a breathtaking view of the valley below. It wasn't overexposed and she looks as though she might speak. The original was a tiny negative that was taken on a cheap little camera. We sent the print to Eastman Kodak and they enlarged it into a thing of great beauty. I carry it in a double frame, and on the opposite side of the frame, facing the picture, is that precious poem that begins, Should you go first, and I remain. On my lonely walk this morning, I realized afresh that God has shut me up to himself and himself alone. There is no one else to whom I can turn. There are friends and relatives, but the other half of my life is now gone. God is my portion and my reward. I know not what to do, but my eyes are upon Him. But I must be sure that I look to Him in truth and trust and love, not merely because I must and there is nothing else I can do. There is not much to be gained from dependence on God simply as a last resort. If I go around looking for some broken reed, some arm of the flesh on which to lean, then I have not learned my lesson and God must deal further with me. He does not come to our relief until we stop trying to save ourselves. Sometimes a lifeguard must knock out a drowning man because in his desperation that man might hold on so tightly that both might drown. When we reach utter desperation and are satisfied with God alone, then he may step in with help that we never dreamed of and never could be found before. To pretend that we are marooned on God and at the same time make clever plans to meet our needs is hypocrisy. And Psalm 123 is the prayer of a man shut up to God alone. Behold, as the eye of the servants look to the hand of their masters and the eyes of a maiden unto the hand of her mistress, so our eyes wait upon the Lord our God until that He 
has mercy on us. The New Testament calls it looking unto Jesus. When we reach that blessed point, we may rest in peace, for God will never, ever fail us. He may test our faith and try our patience, but He will perfect that which concerns us. I trust in God, but why? Because there is nothing else I can do, because I love Him for myself. The life of faith. I've got nothing else, nor do I want anything else, nor do I want God as a last resort. I trust wholly upon Him to hear His voice. And He will guide, He will perfect that which concerns you. Though you have different voices telling you what to do, you must learn by the Word of God, by prayer, in scriptural principles, to hear God's voice and trust Him alone. Heavenly Father, we're delighted to learn that you're delighted to guide. The future is uncertain, but the one who sees and guides us in the future is very certain. It's a solid foundation upon which we lean. Christ and no other. We trust you for our salvation, not our own works. We trust you for the future, not our own plans. We trust that your will is the perfect will, and we trust that you're able to demonstrate to us and reveal to us what your will is. Lord, I pray that we would hear your voice above our own mind, our enemies, or even well-meaning friends that aren't always hearing your voice. I pray that we would want to be in that responsible position of hearing and doing. And Father, we pray right now also for those who are in this room who have not yet even trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior. They've never had their sins forgiven because they've never made that first step of faith which would say, Jesus, here is my life. I recognize I'm a sinner and I want you to cleanse me of all my sins. I want to hear your voice. Lord, save them. In this attitude of silence and prayer, some of you have felt a voice inside. You weren't quite sure what it is, but there was this tug, this movement, this drawing. And let me tell you tonight that it's the voice of God's Holy Spirit drawing you to Himself. You've come by invitation or curiosity or for a number of reasons, but God is trying to get a hold of your heart. He wants to save you. He wants you to be born again.